Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode discusses the Laurie Anderson film Heart of a Dog, a documentary, essay film, experimental film, cinepoem, call it what you will. It's a very interesting work that we'll get into in a moment. Uh, you are, of course, invited to share your own feedback on this film or any other that I've discussed on Lost in the Movies, even if the episode was a while ago. I'm always happy to share that on these episodes. Uh, the previous episode of this podcast covered Marie Antoinette, the Sofia Coppola film from 2006. And here's a quick update on my other recent work since that episode. Uh, on the site, I continued the Twin Peaks character series including entries, uh, second, third, and fourth preface, where I round up uh, minor characters. One was a collection of minor characters in Twin Peaks. Uh, there was a link to an old entry that didn't need to be updated on the top 30 hidden characters of Twin Peaks. And then the top 30 runners-up of the new Twin Peaks, characters who had less than 10 minutes of screen time, but still had some significant presence there. And I provided links to the bonus entries, uh, 1 through 21. These are entries that I wrote for the original series back in 2017, uh, before the return, and uh, I changed my criteria. It was, at that time, it was any character who has dialogue in three scenes. So I had these entries written. They don't really fit in with the new uh, criterion, which was 10 minutes of screen time, but uh, I wanted to link them up as bonuses here. And then I updated three of those bonuses on Heidi, Vivian Niles, and Johnny Horn to reflect new material either in the third season or the Mark Frost book, The Final Dossier. So a lot going on there. If you're listening to this, as a movie buff, not a Twin Peaks fan, I'm sure it's all Greek, but uh, you know, if you get into Twin Peaks, you'll find quite a bit of work on it on my site, so I always like to encourage people to go in that direction. And I started the official entries of the series, ranking these characters by screen time, with Stephen Burnett at number 86, Phil Bisbee at number 85, and Sylvia Horn at number 84. And then the last post I put up was links to uh, Mountie Preston King, Judge Clinton Sternwood, and Emery Battis, 83 through 81, and uh, also an updated entry on Philip Jeffries, the character played by David Bowie in the Twin Peaks film Firewalk with me. That just went up today, so you can check that out on the site. I updated my picture gallery and top posts pages on lostinthemovies.com. These have links to uh, works uh, in the picture gallery's place. You know, you can click on the image and see wherever it's featured on the site. Just highlights of... of um, you know, visual highlights, I guess, of any work I've published and top posts as, as it says, what I think is the strongest work on my site. So I added some podcasts from 2022 to that. I also updated my archive pages. Uh, these are where I just have a roundup with a quick line or two on what the post is about, like a chronological survey of all my work on the site. And this was, uh, so I added a new chapter to that, chapter 41, podcast immersion, covering the period from April to December 2022, and also a page for the whole year of 2022. So these will all be linked in the show notes. Um, and if I run out of space for the links, I'll, I'll have a link to the uh, cross post for Heart of a Dog, which will have all these there. And finally, for my other podcast feeds, Twin Peaks Cinema, I put out episode number 21, Mulholland Drive. This is kicking off a season on the Lynch first comparisons between David Lynch films and his work on Twin Peaks. There's a cross post to that on the site. And on Patreon, I issued for the dollar a month tier, last call for listener feedback. I wanted to get uh, general feedback on really any topic that interests people or something I covered on the Patreon podcast. I've been doing this for a long time, and this will be the last time that I round up and read that general feedback. Although, as I said, I'll continue to read uh, specific feedback to these public episodes on this podcast. Uh, the January Patreon and Twin Peaks conversations aren't quite ready yet, though they should be ready soon. So that's it for my uh, work update. 
Now let's get on to Heart of a Dog. And just as a kind of um, a bookkeeping uh, statement, I guess, this was recorded for patrons back uh, five years ago. So there's some references to the passage of time, which now, you know, even more time has passed, uh, interestingly. So you can add that layer to what's already under uh, consideration here. What is the name of those things you see when you close your eyes? I think it's phosphines, the reddish patterns, the little stripes and dots and blurry little lines you see floating around when you close your eyes. And no one really knows what they are or what they're for. Sometimes they seem to be brought on by sound or random electrical magnetic firing. Sometimes phosphines are called prisoner's cinema. Some kind of eternal, plotless, avant-garde animated movie. Or maybe they're just screensavers, holding patterns that just sit there so your brain won't fall asleep. Heart of a Dog is an HBO-produced documentary from 2015. It's created by Laurie Anderson, who is an artist, a very prolific artist in many different fields, probably most notably music. I think this is definitely the first film I've seen by her. And uh, honestly, I'm not even that familiar with a lot of her uh, works in other mediums as well. I knew the name and I looked into her history and kind of saw, okay, so these are some of the areas, you know, that I heard of her from. She was married to Lou Reed and the film is dedicated to him. And it's interesting because it's a, it's essentially a memoir film in a lot of ways and it's about death. Lou Reed passed away late in 2013. This film came out in 2015 and I, I think a lot of it was probably I think a lot of it was created probably before he died. And so it's interesting that he's not mentioned in it at all, although he sings the song over the closing credits, but it's about her mother passing away and uh, a lot about her dog passing away. Lola Bell and the dog's history before it came to her and the moment she had with it. And then it's uh, the, the dog's blindness and eventually the uh, the dog's death. She doesn't have Lola Bell put to sleep. She talks a lot about Buddhism in the uh, film, and uh, she was advised that the dog's experience of death would be similar to humans in the sense that it would approach death and move away and approach it again and eventually almost warm itself up to the idea of dying and that this was a process that had to be allowed. So she allowed the dog to die that way and... You know, it's documented throughout the film and video and photos. Now, here's the thing. This isn't, uh, it's much more of an experimental film than a conventional documentary. If you're going to call it anything in particular, I think it would be an essay film. And essay films are a really interesting form. I don't think they fit entirely inside of the documentary paradigm, in my opinion. They're a little outside of that in a way. They're not just a subsection, you know, if you're charting all this stuff out. There's a lot more experimentation in it. There's something being created in the sense that, uh, you know, in a documentary, you're trying to follow or trace a phenomenon. The essential word there is following. You're following that process along in it essay film there's more of an act of creation but it is following your thought process and 
and oftentimes your memories. This film is interesting in the sense that it does feel very structured around her reflections and her words. There's a lot of really gorgeous visual invention throughout this film. There's a texture to it. There's some sort of, I don't want to say filter, but maybe a digital filter, you could call it something that scratches on the surface of the movie. This is structured so much around the words, and therefore sometimes the visuals are just playing catch up. But that's kind of rare. And also it's funny because I was thinking about that. I was watching the film and I found myself musing to myself and thinking, okay, well, what am I going to say about this? And then I realized suddenly I'd been watching it for two or three minutes and there hadn't been any narration. It was just shot of woods, I think with the snow falling and no words whatsoever. So I thought, I thought that was kind of funny and it was a whimsical irony that fits very well in, in the mood of this film and the amusement that she has at times. I think there's sometimes essay films that build toward this grand conclusion, even though they're usually very free-flowing. But in this film, it remains fragmented in a way that's really fascinating. Like, she doesn't attempt to tie it all together into this bigger structure where it all makes sense. She allows these fleeting moments to emerge and slip away and come back and and dangle there for a moment and float off. And it's just really fascinating. And it certainly ties into what she talks about with her dog, you know, this idea of Lola Bell going through the Bardo state, tangling with the memories of life and letting them go and everything. And that's obviously a very conscious or at least self-aware strategy that she's using in this. And I, I think it's really rich and provocative. And, you know, I have to say, too, that the idea that it is dedicated to Lou Reed and that she mentions him at the end and he sings over the credits, it brings this extra level of poignance to it because she's so upfront about uh, what she's talking about throughout this film. And then to almost discover there's a secret something withheld in a way and that also relates to something she talks about throughout where she has these memories and these stories she tells and then she realizes she's forgotten really in some ways the crucial detail for example she talks about being in a hospital after she dove off a diving board and landed on the concrete which uh, just hearing that story I kind of viscerally flinched and groaned just watching this it's almost like something under the fingernail or you know there's certain things that it's just like you can feel it in your whole body and the idea of jumping into a pool and landing on concrete just made me shudder but anyways she was in there for a long time and she was in a ward where there were uh, children who were burn victims and she tells this story and she's talking about how she had to listen to people read these tedious stories to her and the doctor told her she wasn't going to walk and then eventually, after years of telling the story, she realizes she's forgotten something fundamental about what it was like to be there, which was the sounds and the smells and just this this realization that she was surrounded by death and the children screaming and crying and they'd be gone in the morning and this horror that she'd almost covered up for herself. And there's another moment later on where she's talking about her mother and feeling like she didn't love her and she wanted to remember something. And then she remembers a story about her twin i think they're twins her younger siblings falling under the ice and she died she got quite a few very nearly deadly childhood experiences i don't know how common that is I, maybe i was lucky these incidents that she had i mean she literally dove under the ice and saved her her younger siblings she told her mother thinking her mother would be furious and she said oh what a wonderful swimmer you are what a wonderful diver you are i wonder if this was after she'd gone off the diving board or not and she says okay that was what i wanted to remember you know, and I had forgotten. So that sense, and then ending the film and almost as an 
afterthought, but you know it was just undergirding everything, whether or not the film was created before that or whether it was created as... I can't remember if, if Lou Reed died slowly or if he died suddenly, but having that moment pop up at the end where it's like, oh my God, in a way, the film was all about that. And also, of course, if it had been made before he passed away, the idea of it being about that before it happens is also fundamental to the film in a way. There's there's a real non-linear sense to it, and the obvious sense that she's jumping around in time, talking about these different periods in her life, but also just this idea of the process of dying, and letting go of life and slipping in and out of it, and everything like that. Something else interesting about this film, on an entirely different note, is it talks a lot about living in New York after 9-11 and what that was like and, and touches on, you know, the surveillance state. She goes into the NSA a little bit and shows these buildings in the desert and compares them to the pyramids in a very interesting association. It was interesting just on a personal note watching this because I think it's the first time I've seen a film about 9-11 that really feels like it's set in a distinct past, in a way. It was like, okay, this was another time that she's talking about. And I don't think I've felt like that before. The last film that I saw that was really dealing with 9-11 was maybe like Zero Dark Thirty. It's almost six years ago now, five, five or six years ago. And even then, it still felt like a part of the historical period that we were still in. But watching this, it really felt like, no, no, this was... This was in the past. This was like if I was watching something about the 70s and the 90s or about the early 90s and like the mid-2000s, something like that. Now, in addition to traveling back and forth through time in a way, the film also does a little bit of, of traveling through space. I wouldn't focus on that aspect too much because I think it's sort of more free-floating in the sense that other than New York, I don't think any place really establishes its presence too much in this film. And even visually, you have these sort of blurred close-ups and these impressionistic, um, you know, montages of her dog in different places. And you're not like getting a sense of geography from that. It's really more about that immersion in that moment from like almost a psychological standpoint, like you're inside of the consciousness of the storyteller versus peering out at the world in this way. So like, for example, I'm not even totally sure where she grew up, where she... I think it might have been, I think she might be Canadian. Um, I know she did a performance at the Vancouver Olympics in 2010, so that would make sense. It's much more of an abstraction, but there is one part where there is a specific sense of leaping around in place. When she's talking about living in New York after 9-11, this increasingly oppressive, anxious air of being watched from the sky and then going to the hills of Northern California and walking her dog through there. And, you know, she shows this in the in the video. These are the most specific presentations of place that are in this film. The shots of New York and then the shots of California. Possibly reshot. I'm not sure. We, we do see the dog in there. I don't know if that's actually Lola Bella or if she kind of shot it with a different dog or something. So So I don't know exactly how that was shot. But just the jumping from New York to California. I mean, just personally, I felt like I could relate to that somewhat. Like I've I've lived in a few different places and I have lived in Southern California, but still spent a little bit of time in Northern California, not that much. And I did live in New York for years. And so there's something intriguing and tantalizing to me about this moving between those worlds. And I thought the film really conveyed that beautifully. Like when you're watching the New York scenes, um, or the shots, I guess, they're not really scenes. You're very much in that environment 
and then suddenly you're in this other environment and it feels so different. And I think that's something that you can achieve much easier within any sort of experimental film, be it an essay film or, or whatever, um, that in some ways is almost more difficult within the confines of a narrative film. There's this overarching gloss, so to speak, that's put over everything. And, you know, certain great artists can, can achieve that sense of shifting between different modes of being in a specifically geographical sense. Uh, in other senses, too. That's just almost one sense of it. But um, there's something beautiful about that in this film. I really appreciated that. And that's it for this episode. Uh, we're going to go out with a preview of what I'm covering next month. This is actually going to be a tie-in to what I'm covering on my Twin Peaks Cinema podcast uh, in March. Over there, I'm going to be covering the film Blue Velvet and its connections to Twin Peaks. I've already covered that on this podcast just on its own terms, uh, but I'm going to have a whole episode on on Twin Peaks Cinema devoted just between the, the links uh, between those works. But on this podcast, on Lost in the Movies, I'm going to have an episode on the documentary Blue Velvet Revisited, a fascinating uh, film about the making of Blue Velvet, very experimental, avant-garde, and uh, I, I liked it so much that I ended up doing a full-on review of that when I was covering Blue Velvet for my Patreon, so I'm offering that here as a standalone episode. So here's some sounds from that to take you out. And they don't stop, and they have all this armor on them. And they're well organized. 